music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and it's the Hivecast. In here with Billy Corgan. Billy, great to see you. Thank you, my friend. You and I both in the in these winters. <laughs> you have to wear hats with our bald heads. It's an essential Actually, thing. Actually, you can't see under this hat, but I'm I'm growing a full crop of hair. Are you? Yeah, you'll see. I definitely, you know, I, I, I I'm not going to reveal it until it's yeah, it's it's back down to my. Well, let, you know, because people have said to me that they should make one of one, you know, one of our heads like a chia pet and actually have like you know those nice. things growing out of nice. it, which nice. I had to be self-deprecating and laugh at that. I didn't. It didn't matter to me. My father used to tell me. Um, uh, Corgans as a species, you know, we don't have a lot of body hair. I don't know if people really want to know that. But he used to tell me it's because we're more evolved than other humans. Yeah. So I think I'm going to go with that for both of us. We're just more evolved. That's it. And they say, you know, there's certain things about testosterone or whatever that or certain chemicals in your body that keep your hair from growing. But but if it's, you know, they say, <laughs> you know, grass doesn't grow on a busy road. And definitely you and I are truly thinkers. <laughs> you know, but... uh <laughs> hey, it's great to see you. You've been doing the tour recently with, you know, with two recent albums. I mean, Oceania and the Melancholy reissue, the box set. Right. Um, there's just so much stuff to choose from. How has the tour worked for you with pulling from the vast amount of music that you have now, Billy? Yeah. Well, the tour was unique in this respect, um, opening and playing the full uh, Oceania top to bottom. We looked at the second half of the show really with a different kind of mindset than we would at any other two I've ever done, which is, look, if we're going to indulge ourselves in this regard, we have to kind of find a point of indulgence for the audience, which is, it has to be a little bit of a no-brainer at some point. And so we we didn't think it was as simple as just kind of playing, let's call it kind of a greatest hits type set, because I'm very much against that. But how can we balance the moments in the back end in a way that they felt complementary with Oceania in terms of feel, sound? So we tried to find those songs that were both fairly well-known or maybe not as known, and then even playing Space Oddity by Bowie, which we used almost as a transitional piece from Oceania into the back catalog, so that the show felt like it had a kind of an, an emotional flow top to bottom and it wasn't two separate moods. That Oceania, in essence, uh, excuse the pun, flowed into this <laughs> into the back end of uh, the Pumpkin's world in a way that felt natural and organic, and I think we did a really good job of that. That's great. Now, what was the rehearsals like? I mean, after making the record, getting everybody up to speed in the band, how much time did you spend working on that? Uh, we rehearsed for six weeks because in most cases, we actually didn't know how to play the songs. In fact, I'd say five or six of the songs we'd never played as a group because they were completely studio constructions. So, yeah, I mean, Jeff and I were sitting there in the corner with the boom box trying to figure out guitar licks. We had to literally break down every part. We'd have, like, guitar part three, section two, you know, ID four, and like have to listen to rain, 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 and try to take, you know, in some cases, 15, 20 guitar parts at once and try to figure out how to distill them down just to two guitars. So we had I mean, to that's kinda, a job in itself. That I mean, took us a long time and, and was very difficult. And um, yeah, I mean, we worked really hard. Um, I mean, you played all those keyboard parts on the record too. So you yeah, so many so, things. Yeah, and there was the decision about whether or not to use um, backing tapes or whether in some cases just to have any... Um, like if there was a keyboard part, you might say, well, th- let's just have nothing there. We'll just let the space be. In other cases, we were like, we absolutely have to have this keyboard part. Well, who's going to play it? Okay, Nicole, can you play it? So we, everybody had a keyboard. Jeff played keyboards during the show. Nicole played keyboards. At some point, we were even talking about having Mike having to play some keyboards too. So, Which is amazing when you think about it because it just shows how 
with your band members now being talented enough and interchangeable to do those different yeah. things and play multiple instruments? Well, it's hard to explain. It was like, I think the key for the rehearsals was Jeff, because at some point I was like, maybe we should get other people in here. There's a lot of vocals on this album, and we really did want to represent the album. And Jeff was pretty adamant, uh, the guitar player of the band, that um, we just keep it between the four of us. Self-contained. Whatever. He actually, in fact, uh, cited Rush and his Rush, the band, as an example of just let's keep it with the band. If we can't do it as a band, then we just won't do it. Yeah. And I think that was a really wise decision because the minute you add another person to the mix, then there's another personality, there's another thing that can go wrong, there's another person either having a good day or a bad day. and Getting them up to speed too with you know with every book. Yeah, but honestly it's more about the inner dynamic. Yeah. The four of us have a really good inner dynamic. It's the most peaceful and harmonious band I've ever been in. Everyone's very mature, uh, which says a lot for Mike considering he's just 22 years old. Um we have to talk about that again because I still love that story. Yeah. I know that we've covered this in other interviews that you and I have done, but I just love the way that you found Mike. I mean, right. the fact that you found him through YouTube and you actually had to get his parents' permission. What was that feeling like when you saw him play? You were just like, wow, this kid is amazing. Well, um, was he 17 at the time? Well, he was 19. I 19. didn't get his parents' permission. I think what it was is I wanted to speak to his parents because to place the weight of that world on a 19-year-old man's shoulders... I wanted to see if his parents thought he could deal with it. And they didn't blink. And it wasn't the boastful pride of parents like, oh, he can handle it. They were like, no, we, he can handle it. He's got the inner character. And they were true about that. I mean, how many, I, you know, you could say a lot about him as a musician, but how many young people in this world could step into a role where you've never played in front of more than 50 people in your life and within a year from that point on, you're playing in front of 60,000 people at a festival and you don't blink and you don't drop the sticks and you don't mess up and you don't lose your mind. And you don't go run off and do drugs. You know, you play a great gig. I mean, that says a lot. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And we're at a point now that we're, um, he's been in the band for over three years. And to us, age is no longer the issue. It's not an excuse. He gets no, he gets the same treatment we all do. It's like, yeah, no pass at this no, point. No, he gets the Billy Corgan. Uh, <laughs> You have to play to this level every night, and that's what we're here to do, and that's what this band's about. And we all hold each other to the same standard. Um, uh, I'm just as critical on myself. So I'm lucky I have four, uh, well, counting myself, I was counting myself. I have three motivated people who really believe in what the pumpkins represent. And um, we went in with a very high intention. We actually came out having proven our point. And I think uh, it's going to be exciting because I think we were talking about the other day. Now that the door is open to people being open to what we're going to do, now this is a real opportunity to come with a classic album. You feel great about that at this point in time, I'm sure. Well, I do. It's a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. And and you and I have discussed this before. You have to really wonder if it's even worth it anymore. You know, people just really aren't listening to albums the way that we listen to albums. Is the album really worth it? I've said publicly, I don't think so. But that seems to be where we're headed. So uh, maybe we're just going to have to trust that. Yeah. Well, I love that you made this as a piece of work. When you first played this for me in the studio in Los Angeles, and you're like, Matt, I think, what was the comment? You, do you have, uh, f- how many how many minutes is the album? 60. 60. You were like, Matt, do you have an hour? Because that's what you need to do. you got to listen to the whole record, which was, I love the way you presented it to and me. You said, no, I'm Matt Pinfield. I don't, I don't even have time for myself. And you <laughs> so stormed I, out of the room. I stormed out of the room, or I only listened. I said, play me the three singles, and I'm leaving. No, I didn't. We, we I don't hear that. any cooks in here, boy. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> we, uh, and we had fun listening to it that day, and I just love the layering, the textures mm. on the record itself. Thank which you. It was great. Thank and, you. Uh, 
You know, it's funny, Billy, after we saw each other, you know, when we did the thing in Palm Springs, you saw Howard Stern played part of the interview on the radio of you and I talking. He talked about how great it was that you had referenced him and about you were going to go on. Oh, fantastic. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Howard made a thing. He, you know, he's a, such a big fan of yours, and he said, yeah, you know, they talked about the whole thing with the Celestials, and if I played tonight, tonight, you got to play my record. And he and Robin had a good talk about it. We were super positive, and then actually played part of the audio. Oh, that's fantastic. Which was which was super cool. You know, it was, it was great, especially, uh, you know, because he's, again, he has such an incredible reach, and he's such a big fan of yours. Well, Howard stands alone. I mean, he's really a... He's a unique American personality, and I think uh, uh, to spin this off in a slightly different direction, I think what we're seeing now in the evolution of what it means to be famous and be successful, and I think you even see this in your um, professional life, it's becoming less and less about taking somebody who's talented and forcing them into that round uh, peg into that square hole, and it's actually people like us developing what we do into our own world, and it doesn't have to be one thing or another. You get to be yourself, I get to be myself. And uh, that's why I try to encourage people about uh, the Smashing Pumpkins. It's really ultimately going to be more about what the band truly represents. People keep comparing it to what it used to mean in a different world with a different set of paradigms, with MTV and the record labels and millions of dollars. I think in many ways the business where we're headed is much cooler than that business. It may not be as lucrative, but ultimately maybe more representative of our indie DIY values, which is where we both come from. Where we started. Which is really about why do we do what we do? Yeah. And once it gets in all that corporate stuff, I mean, that's where the idiocy starts. Yeah, well, we've sure experienced. Yeah, you had that. You had a few issues with the <laughs> suits? <laughs> in my day, yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's the ups and downs of when it gets to the point where there's so many cooks in a kitchen, you know, wherever you happen to be and depending right. on... But uh, also, I feel grateful that I've been able to do this stuff as long as I have and that we do have that DIY thing. You're getting that deeper, more gravelly voice as you get older, too, which commands authority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's funny, Billy. But I, I want to talk about some of the songs, you know, I've been thinking about My Love is Winter, which is such a great track. It's perfect for this time of year. Uh-huh. I've been listening to it a lot. Tell me about the writing of that song. Originally, it was... Uh conceived as a ballad and played really slow and we even played it live for a while uh and it to us it sounded almost kind of like a led zeppelin kind of ballad it had a nice kind of swagger mike was kind of playing like a john bonham type of beat it was nice but kind of ultimately unremarkable but we all believed in the song so we started talking about what if we did it kind of more shoegazer style sped the tempo up and suddenly there was the song and then Somewhere in the middle, it turns into Rick Wakeman and Yes and stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's one of those songs that probably is fairly reflective of the band's personal taste. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I have had those conversations about where the Pumpkins were in the beginning, and just you, you loved a lot of. We both love bands like Ride and mm. some of those those bands that were around at that time. Yeah. Like slow dives of the world. Yeah. To me, uh, My Love Is Winter sounds kind of like modern shoegaze. Yeah. Uh, with a pop twist. Didn't you do Catherine Will cover at one point as well, or did you? No, I don't. But you were a fan of that stuff, though, right? Oh wait, they toured uh, with us. Uh, Catherine Will opened for us, I think, in ninety one, ninety two, in European touring. And it was great to hear like Black Metallica every night. And I want yeah, to touch you what a great all. song. It's amazing song, stuff, yeah. isn't it? Tell me and about... he's related to, you know, Iron Maiden. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that whole Rob Dickinson, Bruce Dickinson amazing. thing. They're yeah, of cousins. Course, of course, you know, I was very impressed by that. 92. 
Yeah. Metal, metal Billy. You and I both like that. I mean, it was cool. And, you know, and after meeting Bruce Dickinson, he was actually really cool when I he did a of course show he's a cool. time I mean, ago. And those Rob's guys, great. Those guys, are, I love Maiden. I just, you know, I, think, I, just, I just love, it gives me great pleasure as a fan that a band like Iron Maiden has endured and been proven right. Yeah. Not wrong. Exactly. You know. And any band who uses the intro to the show, The Prisoner, the original Patrick <laughs> McGoon, in a song as a theme of a song is great for me. That whole, do you know, do you know the story of the first time I saw Iron Maiden? No, tell me about it. I saw him uh, the week. Uh, what's the first album that uh, Bruce Dickinson's on? I can't remember. Uh, I'm just God, tired. I'm spacing on it right now. No, I'm it's the it. fam- yeah. Number of the Beast. Number of the Beast, yeah. Okay, I saw him the week Number of the Beast came out. Yeah. They were playing a, a festival in Chicago called Chicago Fest. Yeah. So I would have been about, what, 13, 14 years yeah. old. And my mother wanted to see the band Chicago, my stepmother. So she was in another area on another stage watching Chicago play. And my brother and I, were, were we went to see Maiden. And the show was amazing. It was about 8,000 guys in a field. And Eddie comes out and the whole thing and the encore. And all of a sudden I feel this tug in my sleeve and my brother goes, Mom says it's time to go. Oh, and I'm like, I'm like, but it's the encore. He's like, come on, mom. So let's go right now. Was it doing the trooper or something? Was yeah. it? Like, so I, got, I, I, I had to leave. That's such a, you know, that's part of being the kid and not in control of the wheels. Totally. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Chicago because you know you have a song, "Wishing You Were Real," which uh, oh, yeah, and yeah. "Wishing You Were Here" by Chicago. It's kind of the other play on it, which I was thinking about. You know, both from the same area, same town. Yeah. Right? But uh, and speaking of wishing you were real, actually, my father—this is probably not relevant. My father recently told me a story that I'd never heard before. There were a lot of bands around Chicago, the Chicago, the city, um, that had that same kind of ensemble: horns, B three organ, guitar, lead guitar player type of thing. And my band, my father was in a band that was similar to the band Chicago, and I believe it was Jim Gershio was interested in the band my father was in, and came in to see my father's band. And for whatever reason, they talked or it didn't go well or they, the guy refused something. So Jim Gershio went across the street and the band Chicago was playing and the rest is history with yeah, that cause... thing. And, and, of course, my dad missed his big shot at the big time. So I just heard the story recently. I'd never heard it before. That's mind-blowing. And, you know, because obviously Chicago being a town of which mixed so many musical styles. But, yeah, James Gershio, for those people listening, yeah. you don't know, ended up producing them, being management in management yeah, with yeah. them. So my father, my father had that shot just before them. So and what, what you said it was like a guy in your father's band that was kind of like didn't you know? I think this I can't remember because the guy has recently surfaced. I I got some recordings that I passed on to my father that it was my dad playing guitar at nineteen in this guy's band. I wish I could remember his name. Um, but anyway, that gentleman had a band and my father was part of it. Similar type of thing, big kind of sixties blood, sweat, and tears kind of thing. Yeah, you know, horns and everything. They were all big at the same time. Yeah, was, you know. And uh, Jim Gershia was interested in the band my father was in and for whatever reason Jim Gershaw didn't like them or something didn't go well with what he was offering them and he literally went across the street and the band <laughs> Chicago was playing across the street and the rest is history and on changed that. people's lives forever like yeah. Robert Lamb and Terry Caffer 25 or 6 to 4 yeah that's a great song is that like the, one of the first things everybody learns on guitar that riff that smoke on the water I guess those two are two of the easiest yes. things to play as bar chords you know when you're starting out but uh, so, Billy, tell me about working on the box set. I mean, you obviously when for you, melancholy, you're from melancholy because yeah. you did the other ones. You did Gish and Siamese Dream and so, Pisces no, and Pisces. No. This is beautiful. I mean, it's an amazing. All of oh. them are. But now this is this one. Uh, uh, Noel Wagner, the the 
art director really outdid himself on this one. I was pretty shocked. It's, they uh, dug up a lot of archival materials related to the album, original sketches and stuff I didn't even know existed. So um, you get a whole sense of how the artwork was put together and certainly the music and listening to the extra tracks. Yeah, it's so much fun to listen to it and to pull on and hear those different things like the strings only of tonight, tonight, and mm. some of the other mixes and yeah. things that are. I'm more out. into the. I think the. I think just digging through the barrel and finding the songs that aren't released. I think most people are kind of un, not as interested in that anymore. I think almost treating the box sets as almost audio documentaries, where if you love an album, you get a sense of what it was like to make an album. That's been the best compliment I've gotten on the Melancholy box set. Is people say they feel like they get an understanding of the kind of the choices we were making yeah. as we went along. Yeah, so they feel like they're a fly on the wall. Yeah, actually, they, there. Actually, that's I believe it or not, that's actually what I said. I said I want people to be a fly on the wall for the process because Melancholy was an eight-month process, about four months of writing and four months of recording. And, um, you know, I think to finish the album, I worked 86 days straight. I mean, it was complete madness. There were 50-plus songs to choose from. Uh, Flood hated some of the stuff that we had that we loved that would probably would have gone on if he hadn't have been there. And some of the stuff he wanted to go on at the time I didn't quite understand. He wanted the band to kind of go in a darker direction. And now, of course, I really appreciate that because there's a certain depth there that's aged well. Yeah. It really has, hasn't it? Yeah. Billy, I want to, you know, thank you for coming by and doing the Hivecast today and just to tell you. know, I love MTV and anything to do with MTV. <laughs> it's great to see you, Billy. Thanks thank for you, coming man. by. The Hivecast. This has been The Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.